Good morning, everyone. We are starting a new series that is out of the book of Ecclesiastes. How many people have heard a sermon series through the book of Ecclesiastes verse by verse? A handful, a handful. Well, I have never preached a series verse by verse, verse by verse through the book of Ecclesiastes. So it's going to be very similar to all of us. Um, I have noticed in my study, I often say Samuel. When I say Samuel, I actually mean Solomon. So if I ever say, oh, Samuel said, just remember, Tim just forgot. It is Sam, uh, Solomon. Oh, my goodness. Because I just thought of Saul and Samson. <sighs> if I say any of those names, just know we're talking about Solomon. I'm going to have to write that in big letters somewhere. Um, and the main theme of the book of Ecclesiastes is this idea of wisdom. And I want to give us a working definition of wisdom that will take us through the entire book of Ecclesiastes. And that is, wisdom is correctly applied biblical knowledge. Wisdom is correctly applied biblical knowledge. Wisdom has almost nothing to do with intelligence. It doesn't matter if someone is super smart. That does not make them wise in God's eyes. Nor is someone who is incredibly emotional. Emotions does not make someone wise. Neither does someone who is able to analyze and figure out riddles. That doesn't make someone wise. It makes someone good at figuring out riddles. It has nothing to do with wealth or poverty. And wisdom really has nothing to do with age. Wisdom has to do everything with taking biblical knowledge and rightly applying it. So there's three things in that definition that are super important that need to be present with us at all times through the book of Ecclesiastes. That first is there has to be knowledge, biblical knowledge. So an understanding of scripture, an understanding of who we are, an understanding of who God is, an understanding of what it requires of us. All of those things, all the itty-bitty details and all the big, broad strokes of God's redemptive story, all of those things are necessary and important. It then has to be applied. It has to be made real in our lives. It's not just a memory work of I can recite encyclopedic moments in Scripture and I know these stories and I know these verses. There's more to it than that. It has to be applied. It has to be lived and loved and appreciated and influencing your everyday life. All of your dreams, hopes, emotions, and strengths have to be determined by what has God said. All of your decision-making, what has God said? Has God given me clarity and instruction regarding these things? But it also has to be correctly applied biblical knowledge. Correctly which means you have to be a good, diligent student of Scripture. Seeing the beginning from the end, does it contradict? Does your view contradict what God has said? It has to be correctly applied, and that takes a lifetime to gain that knowledge, and it takes a lifetime to apply it, and it takes a lifetime to correctly apply it. We are constantly in a state of correctly applying God's truth. And as we do that in a greater and greater way, more consistently, we become wise. And I want to start by looking at a parable in Luke chapter 12. And we'll get back to uh, Ecclesiastes in a moment. But in Luke chapter 12, there's this beautiful parable that Jesus talks about. 
in verse 13 through 21. Let me read it. It says, Someone in the crowd said to him, that is said to Jesus, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. But he said to him, Man, who made me a judge, an arbiter, over you? And he said to them, Take care and be on your guard against all covetousness, for one's life does not consist in abundance of his possessions. See, and oftentimes we can look at someone who is wealthy and famous as someone who is wise and intelligent. We can look at their position in life and go, wow, they're a CEO of a, a company. They'd make a great elder. They'd make a great deacon. No. Someone who correctly applies biblical knowledge makes a good elder, makes a good deacon, makes a consistent biblical Christian. So it's not in the abundance of possession. It's not in the abundance of titles. It's not in the abundance of education. He tells us what it's going to be later on in this parable. And so he told them a parable saying, an earthly story with a heavenly meaning. The land of a rich man produced plentifully. And he thought to himself, what shall I do? For I have nowhere to store my crops. And he said, I'll do this. I will tear down my barns and build larger ones. And there I will store all my grain and all my goods. And I will say to my soul, soul, you have ample goods laid up for you for many years. Relax, eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, fool, this very night your soul is required of you and the things that you have prepared Whose will they be? So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. The individual who pursues the things of this world and feels they have the abundance and feels they have the prestige and feels they have the status, when they die, they do not take it with them. No matter how many pharaohs built pyramids and filled their tombs with servants and treasures and all earthly goods, not a single one of those pharaohs took a single thing with them when they died. Not a one. Where is effort being spent? Jesus indicates being rich towards God, having that understanding of being near to God and having treasures in heaven, having that relationship with God blossom and bloom and become fertile and growing, that is a goal of life, not gathering possessions. And here we come up against the wisdom of this world or advice of this world and the wisdom of God and the advice of God. Nowhere can that be more clearly seen in the story that started Solomon in our minds. In 1 Kings chapter 3, and we will get to Ecclesiastes pretty much almost after this. In 1 Kings chapter 3, or chapter 2, David dies. Now Solomon is David's son through mom and dad, David and Bathsheba. The second son born to David and Bathsheba. And Solomon at the age of 20 becomes king. It's his next rightful place as a descendant of David. And in a dream... In 1 Kings chapter 3, Solomon has just been appointed king. He's 20 years old, and God comes to him in a dream and says, 
Solomon. Goes through some dialogue and basically gets to the point of saying, ask anything of me and I will give it to you. Ask anything of me and I'll give it to you. Not as a genie, but as God creator of the universe, wanting to establish Solomon as the rightful king of Jerusalem and Israel, what do you need from me? I imagine if you took a poll of most 20-year-olds, I'll tell you a couple things that might be on the top of the wish list that they might have, okay? One is they want to be retired by the age of 30. Actually, no, no, they don't want to be retired by the age of 30. They just want money. They don't want to retire at all because they don't want to work. So, God, I want you to bless me with so much money and so much stuff that I never have to work. And I need a house. Oh, no, no, no. I need a couple houses. Different seasons of the year. I want to live in different places of the world. I need a plane in order to get there, which means I'm going to need people to help me. I need servants. I need people that work for me. And, oh, by the way, I want to be really good looking. Okay? Because that's going to get me into clubs. It's going to get me uh, women or men, whatever their preferences. Uh, they're going to fill themselves with this wish list of asking Santa Claus for everything they've ever wanted. Solomon is 20, same age. And do you know what he asked God? He answers that question, okay, God, I'll tell you what I want. I want wisdom and discernment. Wisdom and discernment. I don't know of many 50-year-olds that if they were given that opportunity with God would say, I want wisdom and discernment. Now, we know because Solomon asked for that, we know, okay, that's definitely on the top of the list. we got to ask for that as Christians. Solomon didn't have that advice. We're living with that advice of what Solomon asked for, but Solomon says, I want wisdom and discernment. Help me become a godly man that I might rule this kingdom for your name, is what he's asking. And God says, I'm going to do something better for you. I'm going to make you the wisest person that's ever lived. And still to this day, Solomon has the best knowledge and understanding of correctly applying God's truth than anyone else in the world has ever had. So no, you are not the wisest, and I am not the wisest. Solomon is. And so God said, I'm going to grant that to you. You're going to be a great king under me. And in addition to that, because you didn't ask for all this fluff stuff of this world, I'm also going to give you all that. I'm going to expand your kingdom. I'm going to give you peace on all sides. I'm going to give you plenty. You are never going to want for any material possession in the world. Solomon lives his life. And Solomon, towards the end of his life, he probably died when he was right around 60, maybe 62. Before he dies, he writes this book called Ecclesiastes. The wisest man alive gives us information about holy, godly living. And he starts out in verse 1 and 2 and sets the stage and the theme of the entire book. And he says, the words of the preacher, the son of David, king in Jerusalem, vanity of vanities, says the preacher, vanity of vanities, all is vanity, all is useless, all is futile, all is non-rewarding, all things just end. If you were not depressed before you came in, one of my goals today is to make you feel really bad about yourself. 
make you feel really bad about the choices you've made. I want you to feel miserable about the people that you hang out with. Maybe the person you married, or maybe the person you didn't marry. I want you to feel that guilt. I want you to feel the shame of every one of your mistakes. I want you to feel the embarrassment if your life was portrayed as a movie on top of that screen and everyone watched it. I want you to feel how miserable it is to work week to week to week. Get that paycheck in your bank account and then see it dwindle throughout the month. Isn't that exciting to see that happen? Isn't it exciting that April 15th rolls around every year? Isn't that super exciting? What is April 15th? Tax day. Yay. Guess how long that's going to last for you? Till you die. Oh, yeah, I forgot to mention. Just in case you're starting to actually feel good about yourself, you're going to die. But I got great news for you. You don't know when it's going to happen. It's just going to be a surprise one moment. You're alive, now you're dead. That's exciting. Wow. Tim, you really know how to encourage people in a church. Tim, I am, you know what, I mean, especially if you're a first-time guest, this is, this is the best you're going to get. Reminding you of how depressing life is. Oh, and on top of that, I don't know if any of you have ever experienced this before, but... Once you reach that age of, say, 30, um, things just start to stop working, right? And you have no idea. One day, all of a sudden, you're like, wow, what, when did I get a back? That back has never bothered me before. Knees and, oh, I hang out with a group of guys, and I'm not going to embarrass who I hang out with on Thursday mornings, but pretty much... You go around the circle of those guys and they all kind of complain about the ailments that they have and the doctor visits they're going to be making that week. And I'm like, my goodness, this is my life. I'm going to end up talking about everything that's wrong with me and how I'm falling apart. And it doesn't get better. Wow. Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. All is useless. All is vain. All is filled with self pride and conceitment. Everything is about me, 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 and it's worthless. In the end, it's worthless. If I gave you that advice, it probably wouldn't mean very much. But Solomon is giving you that advice. The person who had the best application of God's word and truth living through his life, he sees at the end of his life this is the theme of humanity without God. This is what most people live with. The frailty of life, the disappointments of life, the hardships of life, the sadness, the anger, the disappointment, the frustration, the uselessness. How many times do you have to weed your flower bed at home? Once and it's done and over? Got to do it all the time. How often do you have to cut your grass? You do it once in your lifetime and it's done? Have to do it over and over. What about that joyous task of grocery shopping? How often do you have to do it? You do that once and it's over? Every single 
we go through the mundane things of life. And it will not end as long as we are on this side of the grave. So the great theme of Ecclesiastes is found in those two verses, especially verse 2. Vanity of vanities, uselessness and uselessness, says the preacher. Vanities of vanities, all is useless. He doesn't get more encouraging in the next section. In fact, in verse 3, all the way to the end of this section in verse 12, or verse 11, excuse me, he says the following. What does man gain by all his toil at which he toils under the sun? So the basic question is, what does man get after all is said and done, after all his getting is done? Like the rich young ruler who bought as much as he possibly could to extend his wealth and barns and structure and safety and peace. In the end, what did it get him? What did it get him? He died. Took nothing with him. He died. So at the end of all that toil, what accomplishments in life do you have? Oh, Tim, I, I got a watch after I retired for 30 years. Oh, fantastic. What's going to happen to that watch one day? It's going to fall apart, stop working, breaking, getting tarnished, lost, broken. Yay. Even that plaque is going to go away. Even that diploma is actually going to deteriorate and fall apart. Even that relationship, oh, it's going to end. All that money can be gone like that. All that health can vanish in a heartbeat with a car accident or slipping and falling in your home. It can go that quick. What does man gain by all the toil at which he toils under the sun? A generation goes and a generation comes, but the earth remains forever. Earth is here, but that generation that happened 100 years ago, what do you know about them? What do you know about that generation that happened a hundred, even a hundred years ago? You know a couple names here, a couple names there, especially the famous people or a rich person, but you can count that on one hand. They come and go. Earth remains, but the people, they're but a vapor. Here for a minute and then gone. The sun rises, verse 5, and the sun goes down and hastens the place where it rises. That continual, it's happening over and over again. Day in and day out, it's the same monotonous routine. I get up, start my morning routine, go through my day, I work, get the money in the bank, pay bills, eat, have a little bit of fun, go to bed, and the next day is the same. I have um, oftentimes a, a phone call with my mom uh, and I dread it when she says, I mean, I like talking to my mom, but I dread the question when she says, uh, so uh, what did you do this week? Like, the same thing I do every week. You know, it's the same thing I do every week. And I used to think that I was being a smart aleck when my mom would ask me that as a kid. Hey, what'd you do in school? Um, but life is like that. One day feels very much similar to the next day and the past week and the past month. Yes, our lives are punctuated by big events, 
that we find important, marriage, birth, death, new job, moving. I mean, we have some punctuated moments where our week is different, but in reality, it feels monotonously the same day in and day out, day in and day out. He goes on and says in verse 6, the wind blows to the south and goes around to the north and goes around and around the wind, and on its circuit, the wind returns. Just, it keeps happening. One day, the wind blows, the next day it doesn't, and the next day it blows, and the next day it doesn't. It goes here, it goes there, it goes up, it goes down. Weather and life just happens. The cloud comes in, the sun rises, the sun sets. It's the same thing every day. The monotony of life continues. Verse 7, all the streams run into the sea, but the sea is not full. To the place where the streams flow, there they flow again. All the rain, all the clouds, all the rivers, all the lakes. It's just this one big cycle of things happening time and time again. Day after day and decade after decade and millennia after millennia. It's all just a cycle of happening going on. It doesn't stop because you want it to stop. It doesn't change because you want it to change. It just keeps on trucking along. Day in and day out. All things, verse 8, are full of weariness. A man cannot utter it. The eye is not satisfied with seeing, nor the ear filled with hearing. It goes on and on and on and on. Every day is monotonous. It's slow. It's not changing. It doesn't happen the way we want things to happen. We go to bed, and the next day starts with all these grand plans and ideas and dreams of what might be. And you work through the day, you live the day, you face the day, the day comes, the day goes, and you go to bed. And you get up again the next morning with all the dreams and hopes that you might have, all the changes you want to see, all the lists that you want to accomplish. And you go through the day, and it happens, punctuated by some memorable events, but basically you don't even remember what you had for lunch the day before. And you go through the system. You go through the day. The dreams don't happen. The dreams die that day. But you determine tomorrow it's going to be different. So you go to bed, you wake up the next morning, determine that today's going to be different. And guess what? It's the same monotonous vanity useless day everything else going around and you're wondering will this really ever be satisfying because it is toilsome it is hard it is frustrating it is a cycle of never ending troubles frustration a moment of joy but it's not lasting it's fleeting it goes away quickly and i have to do the same stuff i did before Got to pay the bills, got to go shopping, got to keep the house up, got to go to work, got to do work, got to come home and do the things of running a house. Day in and day out. Every single day. And in the end, you get the great reward of dying. Because you can't take it with you. The eye is not satisfied with seeing, nor the ear filled with hearing. 
constantly. Someone wants something new. Entertainment, it always has to be new. It has to be changing. It has to be different. It has to be exciting. It has to be brand new. And if it's not brand new, I can't pay attention to it. I, I can't be interested in it. So it always, people are inventing new ways of doing this, new ways of doing that. We're never satisfied. They're always writing books. They're always writing music. They're always uh, producing movies. They're always changing things around us because we're bored. And we can't be satisfied with the things of this life. We're designed not to be satisfied with the things of this world. We should be bored at this because we're like, this is not as good as it gets. God is as good as it gets. And I can be in that relationship with him. Even if I'm poor and needy or if I'm rich and well provided for. Verse 9. What has been is what will be. And what has been done is what will be done. And there is nothing new under the sun. Technology changes, granted. History changes, granted. But what you're doing today in your life, the overarching part of your life, they did that 100 years ago. They did it 1,000 years ago. They did it 5,000 years ago. Get up, work, do stuff, earn stuff, provide stuff, go to bed. Get up in the morning wanting it to be different, but it's the same. Do stuff, work for stuff, get stuff, spend stuff, lose stuff, go to bed. They've been doing that since the day Adam and Eve were kicked out of the Garden of Eden. We've been doing it a long time. Are you tired of it yet? Some of you have kind of started the journey. Some of you, you've lived a great portion of the journey. Some of you might be at journey's end. The next generation will do the same thing over and over and over again. Verse 10 and 11. Is there a thing of which it is said, see, this is new. It has already been in the ages before us. Whether it's new entertainment, hey, we've all been entertained. New music, hey, we've all heard new music before. New art, we've all seen new art before. New food, we've all had new food before. The newness is just a repetition of the sameness. There's nothing really new. It has already been in the ages before us. In verse 11, ending this section, there is no remembrance of former things, nor will there be any remembrance of latter things yet to be among those who come after me. I don't know how many of you do genealogies. Have any of you kind of worked through a family genealogy? And I'm talking not going back to great grandparents, but going back to like 500 years ago type of thing. Some people have done that. I think it's an interesting thing. I've had family members do that on my behalf. And um, lo and behold, I can trace a family name and a relationship back to around, I think it's 78 BC in Rome. Uh, just a family name. Uh, between 78 BC and today, uh, lots of generations have taken place. And I know the names, birth dates, and death dates of a handful 
of people. Um, all I know about them is their birth, a death, maybe a marriage, and maybe a profession and where they lived. Maybe five things about a person. Did that person have more than five things going on in their life? Are we only five things? Birth, death, maybe marriage, profession, and place we live. That's all I know about them. I don't know what their favorite foods are. I don't know what kind of music they liked. I don't know if they were artists or farmers or if they worked with their hands. I don't know what books they enjoyed. I don't know who they liked to hang out around. I don't know if they enjoyed sports, whatever they may have been at the time. I don't know what kind of house they lived in, what kind of transportation. I don't know what their dreams were. I don't know what their love was like. I don't know what it was like to get into an argument with them or make peace with them. I know five things about some of them. And there's hundreds of thousands of those people in our past that were related to by DNA and family heritage. And we know just a few things. If you had an opportunity in God's goodness to know your great-grandparents, I knew one of them, my great-grandmother. And uh, she was well into her 90s when I knew her as a little kid. I know a little bit more about my great-grandma than I know about those distant relatives 200, 300, 400, 1,000, 2,000 years ago. But as I have become a little bit older than that five-year-old boy, even those memories I had of her start to fade, start to change. And I know I'm not the only one that's experienced that. Even though she had an incredible life, came all the way from Lithuania on a boat to, uh, to, uh, to the Statue of Liberty to be naturalized as a citizen, I mean, an incredible story of hardship when she was not even a teenager yet, incredible story. But um, I really don't know her. I don't know those intimate details about her life, her hopes and dreams that she woke up each day with that did not get satisfied and she died with. If the Lord does not come quickly, 200 years from now, someone will be doing a family tree of your family. And they'll come across your name. They'll come across when you were born, maybe when you were married, what you did, maybe where you lived. And that will be all they know about you. And it's not because they forgot. It's just that you're a vapor. Just here one moment and gone the next. Here one moment and gone the next. You know, I think if you believe you're going to make some indelible mark on this world, and the sands of time, I think you're going to be very disappointed because out of a culture of like seven or eight billion people in this world, 
there's just a handful of peoples who names who are recognized and remembered. Just a handful. Yes, you'll get that famous person every generation that people will remember because they're printed on money or carved in stone or there's a statue of them or there's a holiday or a school named after them. But all of that eventually changes if the world is round long enough. All of those ancient cities talked about in Scripture totally radically changed and different. Tore down, rebuilt, tore down, rebuilt, tore down, rebuilt. And all the names associated with that tearing down and building up, tearing down and building up, tearing down and building up are gone. They're gone. The neighbors you had growing up, gone. The stores and places you remember growing up, some of them tore down, some of them changed. Some of them still there, but everyone is different because everyone has grown old. This is the life that Solomon saw. This is the life that Solomon understood from an earthly bound point of view. And this is how modern philosophy and culture sees it as well. They see it as that uh, parable of the rich fool who distract themselves with stuff, whether it be entertainment or whether it be sports or whether it be money or whether it be vacations or whether it be chasing after beauty and health. They occupy themselves with the stuff and then it hits them. They die and it ends. Solomon saw that. Solomon saw how futile it is to live a life like that. How unfulfilling it is. How unsatisfying it is. How boring it is. How mundane. How useless. How futile. How filled with vanity of vanity. But is life really this pointless? Does it not have like any meaning? Are our actions without any significance? If not, then what is the point of all this? What is the meaning of life? How do we make something out of this mundane existence of constant repetition? How can we find real lasting joy in this? How can we find peace in this? How can we find comfort in this? How can we look to death and not be afraid of it, of it all ending? How do we go about finding the answer that Solomon has pointed out we can't find in this world? We can't find it in relationships or stuff. We can't find it in education we can't find it in travel and opportunities to expand our experiences. Guess what? One day there'll be no more experiences for you to expand. And you'll never reach every experience that this world has to offer. Is there any point? Is it really eat, drink, and be merry? Tomorrow we die. Who cares? Well, obviously you know it's not that. Obviously you know there is meaning. 
There is purpose. There is hope. There is joy. There is excitement about a life that is relatively consistent and mundane because you are walking in God's will as one of his children in forgiveness and mercy, and you are surrounded and covered in the work of Jesus Christ who did it freely on your behalf. Certainly that has a point. That has a meaning. Every time you pray, every time you sing a song of worship, every time you read God's word and you internalize its understanding and apply it in real life, you are in a joyous moment of great discovery of how dependent you are upon God and how lovely he is as a father bestowing upon you grace and mercy. And to live a life that is engaged with that mercy and goodness of God is a life worth living to its fullest. It is a life that is worth working day in and day out if I can grow closer in my understanding of God and draw other people into that relationship. If I have one more day in which I can pray, one more day in which I can meditate upon God's word, one more day to forgive someone who offends me, one more day to show peace and mercy to others, one more day to love, even in the most mundane, trial-filled, miserable moment of existence as a human, if I have that one moment to love as Christ loved, then I take every advantage of that. And I go through the Monday of that life that I might example love to my God and to those around me. That is what it is like to lay up treasure being rich toward God, is living each day with that exampled purpose. I have a moment in the mundane forgetfulness of my life to love him and to love others because he first loved me. Let's pray. Our gracious Lord, our Savior, our God, our King, Father, we know that you granted Solomon the great wisdom of the ages. But I pray, Father, that even here and now in Pueblo, we might be able to rightly and correctly apply your word that we might face each mundane moment of our existence with the greatness that you've set before us, to love you with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and to love our neighbor as ourselves through the example and work of Jesus in our life, having saved us from all sin and misery and given us the hope of eternal life. In your son's name I pray, amen.